We return this morning to our study of the book of Acts. It's been some time now, but we will begin looking at chapter 10 of the Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 10. Chapter 10 is perhaps the most pivotal chapter in the entire book of Acts. Without question, it is a tremendously significant turning point in the history of redemption. It contains the conversion of a man named Cornelius. Cornelius, along with his household, Now, we've already read of thousands of conversions in the book of Acts. What makes this man's conversion so unique was that he was a Gentile. A Gentile, that's right. Now, children, a Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. If you're not a Jewish man or woman, you are a Gentile. Now, up until this time in the history of redemption... God's dealings had been primarily, almost exclusively, with the Jewish nation, the physical descendants of Abraham. They, above all the people of the earth, were God's chosen people. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were not God's people. Uh, Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes them in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember you, and he's writing to converted Gentiles. He says, remember you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision made with the flesh of hands, that at that time you, as a Gentile, were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a dismal place to be in, but that's how he describes the Gentiles. And yet, from the very beginning, it was God's intention that one day He would save a people for His own special possession that would include the Gentiles. People from every tribe and kindred and nation would be gathered together as God's people. That was God's plan. Thousands of years before this reading will do in the book of Acts, when the Lord called Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, he made a covenant with him and with his descendants. But he also included this very precious promise to Abraham He said, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, God did not reveal everything all at once. He didn't tell him how or when they would be blessed. But he did promise that they would be blessed. Now, in the meantime, for almost 2,000 years, God's dealings were with the Jewish nation. He said to them, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And with few exceptions, the history of redemption was Jewish. The Messiah 
who was to come was to be born of a Jew of the house of David. And so he was. Jesus' earthly ministry, with fewest exceptions, was to the Jewish people. Even he said, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You remember what he told the Samaritan woman at the well? He said, salvation is of the Jews. And then when that Gentile woman came to him and cried out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. He answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. He's talking about the Jew-Gentile relationship. I've come to offer food to the children, the children of Israel. It's not right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs can eat the crumbs under the table. And Jesus had mercy on her and He gave her her request. All of His hand-picked apostles were Jewish men. And throughout the book of Acts up until now, their ministry was to the Jewish nation primarily. And yet it was always God's plan to include all the nations, both Jews and Gentiles. This wasn't some afterthought in the mind of God. It wasn't a parenthesis in God's program for the Jews. It was God's plan all along to include the Gentiles as His people. Now, to be sure, the Jewish people didn't understand this inclusion of the Gentiles as part of God's plan as part of God's covenant people, they didn't understand partly because of their own pride and ignorance, but also it wasn't something that was fully or clearly revealed in the Old Testament. In fact, the Apostle Paul spoke of this inclusion of the Gentiles as a mystery. Uh, Before we, if you just keep your thumb here in Acts 10, turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. I'll show you what I mean. Ephesians chapter 3. You see, a mystery in the New Testament is something that was previously hidden, but is now made known. That's a mystery. In fact, that's how Paul defines a mystery here in Chapter 3 of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 5. He says, well, let me back up and just catch the context here. He's speaking of his ministry to the Gentiles. Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation He made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which you, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His body, I mean, to His holy apostles and prophets. So there he's speaking of this mystery of something that was previously hidden 
it wasn't made known as it's made known now. Uh, and, and that's important. He doesn't mean that it was entirely unknown or completely unrevealed, but it was certainly not revealed as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. They didn't catch this. They didn't understand it. Now, there were times throughout the uh, the history of Israel where God did speak of this. He spoke of the nations coming uh, into the kingdom, spoke of, of the nations flooding in or or let all the peoples praise him, not just the Jewish, but all the peoples praise him and lift him up. Even the Lord Jesus spoke of this sometimes in cryptic terms, but he still spoke of this. He said in one place in John chapter 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold that I must bring in. I believe he was speaking there of the Gentiles being brought into the kingdom of God. So it doesn't mean that it was entirely unknown, but in comparison, it was not revealed. Now, he goes on in this passage in Ephesians 3 to explain exactly what that mystery was. He says in verse 6 that the Gentiles, here's the mystery now, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace given to me by the effective working of His power. So he says, here's the mystery that the Gentiles would be brought in. They would become fellow heirs. They would become part of the same body. Not a separate body, but of the same body. God's own special people. Now, before His ascension into heaven, the risen Jesus Christ gave His apostles this commission. You find it in, in Matthew's Gospel. We also find it at the beginning of the book of Acts. He says to His apostles, You shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They needed to wait in Jerusalem until they received power from on high when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on them, which that day came on the day of Pentecost. Now, when we come to chapter 10 of the book of Acts, it's been about seven or eight years since the day of Pentecost. So some time has gone by. And so far, the apostles have been faithful witnesses of His resurrection. They have faithfully carried out His commission to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea. They've even stepped out of their comfort zone and went to the Samaritans. You remember when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well and she said, Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That was the practice. That was the custom. But now they're taking the gospel to the Samaritans. They were a sort of half-breed. So they've stepped out of their comfort zone. But now things are about to change radically and dramatically. Now the door of salvation must be opened to the Gentiles. The gospel had broken down the walls separating Jews from Samaritans, which was no small thing. Now it must break down the walls of separation with the Gentiles. 
and looking around. Aren't we glad? <laughs> because we're all Gentiles, most of us. I believe Sandy has some Jewish blood in him. But the rest of us are Gentiles. Gentiles, that's right. We're glad this happened. But God made it happen. God gospel overcomes the ingrained prejudices of our sinful hearts and He brings in the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus Christ, by His atoning death and resurrection, has opened the life gate that all may go in. That's what happens with the coming of Christ into the world. Now, this was an exceedingly difficult lesson for the apostles and the church to learn. Yet, it was a vital lesson. They must learn. And God Himself takes the initiative to make sure that they do learn this lesson. Now, it doesn't just happen by uh, just over time. More Gentiles just happen to come into the church and here it's evolved into what we see now. No, God was working. God was building His church. I will build my church, Jesus said. It didn't just happen. He didn't say, you'll build my church. He said, I will build my church. And that's what He's doing. He's ordering all things all the way through. And that's why the book of Acts has been called the Acts of the Apostles, but also the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is acting. He is the one who is working. He takes the initiative to make sure that this church is all that He wants it to be, all that He promised of old that it would be. And He does so by a divinely arranged meeting between a prominent Gentile and the chief apostle. He appears to both of these men separately by way of a vision. And we see how the Lord Jesus was directing their steps, not by His ordinary works of providence, but by special revelation. He appears to these men by way of a vision. And what He's doing, as we'll see, He is preparing both of these men, Cornelius and Peter, for what is about to take place at the end of this chapter. Now, we're not going to get to the end of the chapter. Not this morning. Hopefully next week we will. But He's preparing them for what's about to take place. We see a lot of repetition and the account is told over and over again. One tells it to another. Another tells it to another. It's spoken. But all of this repetition is to show just how important the subject is. It's found all the way through chapter 10 and through the first 18 verses of chapter 11. It's all about what happens in this meeting between these two men. Uh, what we'll see is we'll see the uh, verses 1 through 8. We'll see the vision of Cornelius. The vision that Cornelius experienced. And then verses 9 through 16, we see Peter's vision. And then verses 17 through 23, there's this summons to come to Caesarea. Peter is summoned to Caesarea to preach the gospel to, uh, to uh, Cornelius. And then verses 24 through 48 is the meeting itself. And then when we come to chapter 11, 
Peter goes to Antioch and he is debriefed. He is, has to give an account. What's happened? What's going on? This is so mind-blowing to everyone. They want to know, what are you doing at this Gentile's house? And so he tells them, and they have a revelation or an epiphany. God is granting repentance to the Gentiles. What's going on? But they clearly see that it's of God. God was doing something great and mighty. Well, let's begin by looking at the vision of Cornelius in the first eight verses. So I'll read those verses first. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And when he had explained all these things to him, he sent them to Joppa, where Peter was residing. All right, so Luke begins by introducing us to this certain man named Cornelius, a very common name. He tells us where he resides, his occupation, and his character. He tells us that he lives in Caesarea, which is a very important city on the Mediterranean. It was a port city. He was a centurion of what is called the Italian Regiment. That's his occupation. Now, that sounds very impressive, and it was. He was a Roman soldier, a centurion, which was something like the rank of a captain, who was in charge of a battalion of at least a 100 men. Now, depending on what kind of centurion he was, it could have been as, perhaps as high as 600 men. The Italian regiment uh, is what Sproul calls an elite force that was left there to protect this very important city. He was also a man of means. He lived in a large house. We'll see there's quite a number there when Peter comes. Uh, he had a number of servants and soldiers who waited on him continually. We read that in verse 7. Uh, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. They weren't the only ones. There were others. So he was a man of means. Verse 2 tells us that he was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. It's interesting that the New Testament speaks of four different centurions, and they're all spoken of men of, men of good character and, and a good standing in their community. 
As to his character, we're told in verse 2 that he was a devout man, one who feared God with his household. Now, that was rare, uh, especially among soldiers. It's still rare among soldiers. Uh, one uh, man, John Dick, in his lectures on the Acts of the Apostles, he said, among military men, examples of piety are rare. They are too commonly, they soldiers are too commonly distinguished by their irreligion and profligacy. The precariousness of life amidst the dangers of war, instead of exciting them to prepare for eternity, is grasped for an argument to justify a course of dissipation. What we just read about in First Peter, this riotous living. Uh, their argument is basically this, let us eat, drink, and be merry for what? Tomorrow we die. So instead of preparing them for eternity, they said, this is it. Let's grab all the gusto we can now. This is all we have. But here's a man who feared God, it says. A God-fearer was a technical term referring to a Gentile who had some kind of sympathy with the Jewish religion. He was not fully a Jew. Uh, that is, uh, he embraced the Jewish religion to a certain point. They were monotheists. They had given up any kind of polytheism or idol worship. They believed in the one true and living God. He had embraced the Jewish religion to a certain point. Uh, they adhered to some of the customs, such as observing the times of prayer, which we see him doing right here. At this hour of prayer, that was the Jewish hour of prayer. That's when he goes to pray. Uh, he was observing these times of prayer. He attended the synagogue, no doubt. But they did not observe circumcision or these dietary laws that we'll read about in a moment. Uh, these dietary laws of what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. So they had gone to a certain extent. Now, a proselyte, could have been a Gentile, but a proselyte goes all the way. He's circumcised. He does all the, the, the obeys all the laws of the Jewish custom. Uh, but this kind of God fearer didn't go that far. But we see that he had a wonderful influence on his household. Verse two, it says that he was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household. And that's a remarkable thing as well. Uh, it included not only his family, but his servants. Speaks of this soldier who was also a devout man. Uh, he had an extended influence on his wider family and friends, which we'll read probably next week when we get to the meeting itself. Because when Peter arrives, he's gathered friends and family, and they've all gathered to hear the word of God. So he had some kind of influence, good influence. Wish we all had that kind of influence. But notice how, uh, how well his servants and the soldiers who accompanied spoke of him. Now, we haven't read it yet, but we'll jump over to verse 20. And this is this delegation that, that uh, Cornelius sends to the house of Peter. And uh, uh, he says in verse um, 21, oh, I must have written down the wrong verse. Hold on just a minute. Oh, they speak of him as a just man. Verse 22, Cornelius is the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. Uh, so this is how his, 
his servants and this soldier speak of this man. He was a good man. It says that he prayed always and gave alms generously. He was a generous man. This all speaks well of him. Uh, now, the question is, was Cornelius saved before this time? And I believe that we could answer yes, he was saved uh, because he was following the Jewish religion. He was following and, and hoping as the Jews, as a faithful Jew would be, looking forward to the Messiah. You remember Simeon in the New Testament, that he had been promised that he would see the Lord's Messiah before he died. They were waiting. They were looking forward. The godly Jew, before Christ came, they were waiting for the Messiah, for the hope of Israel. And that's what appears that this man was doing. Uh, notice what uh, Mr. John Dick says in his commentary on this. It cannot be doubted that Cornelius was at, was at present in a state of salvation and that if he had resided in Rome or in some other distant place where the gospel was not published, he might have lived and died in peace and safety without ever knowing that Jesus Christ had come into the world. He had been in the place of those who were waiting and watching for the consolation of Israel. His faith in the Messiah was sincere but he was now in the country which had been the scene of the incarnation, miracles, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. And it was not, a, and it was not fitting that in this situation any good man who was waiting for his manifestation should have remained ignorant of that important event. An angel therefore descended from heaven as on another occasion a star had appeared to conduct this pious Gentile to Christ. Besides the knowledge of the Savior, his views, by the knowledge of his Savior, his views would have been enlarged. His spiritual joy would have been increased. And this stranger, who, although a fearer of God, was excluded by uncircumcision from the communion of the Jewish church, would be admitted by baptism to be a fellow citizen of the saints. So, he was looking forward to Christ, and now God in His mercy and in His grace directs him so that he can hear, and as we'll see, he believes and embraces Jesus as the Christ who had been promised to come. But here we see this good man, a picture of a godly man. His prayers are accepted before the throne of God. He would put many professing Christians to shame, wouldn't he? We don't know how much he knew, but we can be sure he didn't understand all that we understand about the nature of Christ and his death and his sacrifice for sinners. The fact that we have a Roman soldier who fears God is a remarkable thing. Now, as I said, soldiers are known for many things, such as courage and camaraderie and loyalty, but certainly they're not known for piety and godliness. But here's a man that did and was known for these very things. Should we be known for those same things in our homes and in our communities? But what a good example we have before us. And then we read of the vision that Cornelius had from the Lord. Verses 3 through 8. That's where the angel came to him. It was about the ninth hour of the day when he 
clearly saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. Uh, it was a clear vision. It wasn't his imagination. It wasn't he was thinking it might happen. It wasn't just he dreamed and it could have been a real dream from God or that he, he ate something that upset his stomach that night. No, this was a clear vision from God. His initial response to the vision was what? As he observed him in verse 4, he was afraid. He's afraid. Who wouldn't be to see an angel of the Lord? He certainly wasn't like so many of these pretenders and liars who claimed to have seen angels of the Lord and even claimed to have seen the Lord Himself. And yet their response is all too telling. Remember when John MacArthur uh, was speaking to one man who was telling him that Jesus appeared to him every morning while he was shaving. <laughs> and John MacArthur just asked a good question. Tell me, do you stop shaving? Do you stop shaving? Because a response to a holy being would be just that. That's what we see throughout the Scriptures. I fell on my face as a dead man. The Apostle Peter, even when he's in the fishing boat with Jesus and he saw the miraculous catch of the fish, and he realized that he was in the presence of deity, he fell down and said, Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And so his response was natural and, and, and right in some ways. But the angel comforts him and says, Your prayers and your alms have come up as a memorial before God. And then he gives him these directions. And they're directions that, that are, are just so clear and unmistakable. He tells him exactly what he needs to do. Send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And he will tell you what you must do. And so it's very clear, very simple. And uh, it's, it's just, there's no doubt what he must do. But he tells him to send for Peter. Well, let me ask you something. Why didn't the angel just tell him what he needed to know? You ever think about that? Why didn't the angel just tell him the gospel? Couldn't an angel preach the gospel as well as as uh, as Peter or better? Maybe so, but God didn't appoint the angels to preach the gospel. He appointed men to preach the word of God. He told us all to share our faith with others. Quoting again from this same man in his, his commentary here, he says, It's worthy of observation that although God was pleased for wise purposes to, to deviate from his ordinary plan in order to warn Cornelius of his duty, and by means that sending an angel. God doesn't send angels to everybody. He doesn't send angels willy-nilly. Everybody, here's an angel. Everybody, you got your angel. Did he tell you, what did he tell you today? No, this was, this was exceptional. So he deviates from his normal path. And yet, he says, at the same time, God was careful to maintain the authority and honor of his own institution for the conversion of sinners. The angel did not preach the gospel to Cornelius, but informed him where he should find a person who would preach it. 
God has not employed as the messengers of his mercy superior beings whose greatness would have made us afraid and to the charms of whose eloquence the success of his word might have been ascribed. And then he quotes the words of the Apostle Paul. He has put the treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of men. That is so wonderful, isn't it? God sent not angels, but He sent men to preach the Gospel. That's God. God has chosen by the foolishness of preaching to save the lost. He could have sent angels throughout all the corners of the earth to proclaim the message, but He didn't. He sends us. He tells us to go out. He tells us to pray to the Father, the Lord of the harvest, that He would send forth laborers out into the field. The fields are white and ready for harvest. The laborers are few, though, to pray for them, to pray for ministers. As weak as we are, that's what God's chosen. And He does so so that the glory won't be in us, but in Him. I think Pastor Huber talked about Charles Spurgeon when he was saved. He was on his way and he was in a snowstorm. He, he decided to turn into this little church and the regular pastor wasn't there. And it was some man who couldn't preach very well, Spurgeon said. Not very good at all. Not very even eloquent with the king's English or the queen's English. Wasn't very eloquent with that. And yet God used him to save him. That the power might not be in us but in Him. Well, Cornelius, he obeys without question, without hesitancy, which is another good mark on his character. Then we look at Peter's vision, and I can see we're out of time for Peter's vision. Let's just see if we can get through just a little bit of it to catch the context of it. We come to Peter's vision and his instruction from the Lord. The scene changes from Caesarea to Joppa about 30 miles away. Now, Peter, of course, needs no introduction. He's an apostle, one of the chosen twelve. He was considered to be the chief apostle. And it was from among those twelve that God chose him to take the message of salvation to the Gentiles. In chapter 15, if you just turn over there, verse 7, Peter is explaining this at that council of Jerusalem. He says, men and brethren, you know that a, a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring to this chapter right here. God chose Peter. See, God is directing this whole thing. That's why I call it a divinely uh, orchestrated meeting. God is the one who's orchestrating the whole thing. God used many others, and we've read of those in, in the book of Acts, including Stephen and Philip, to take the gospel to the lost. But it, something of this magnitude, bringing the Gentiles into the kingdom of God, would require, I believe, even greater authentication and verification. You remember when, when uh, uh, Philip was preaching to the Samaritans. And the word got back to the uh, to Jerusalem that the Samaritans are, are believing and getting saved. 
They sent a delegation right there. The apostles went there to find out what's going on. You need to authenticate these things. Well, who better than the chief apostle to take it? I think of the Apostle Paul. He became, as we read earlier, the apostle to the Gentiles. Why not him? Well, he was recently converted. Not really very prominent yet at all. Had he taken it, they would have questioned it. <laughs> oh, what do you mean? Oh, what's, what's Paul doing? Maybe he doesn't understand how things work around here. Something of that nature. I don't know. But Peter? They're going to listen to Peter. And so they did. Well, the vision to Cornelius was clear and specific. The vision to Peter, though, was cryptic and perplexing, even perplexing to Peter himself. But, but let's go back to Acts chapter 10 and let's read verses 9 through 15 or through 16. And the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. The voice spoke to him again a second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times. And the object was taken up into the air again. And verse 17 says, Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision, uh, what this, uh, what this vision which he had seen meant, behold the men who had been sent from Cornelius who had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate, and they called and asked where, whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. All right, so, so here's this vision to Peter. It's very uh, cryptic, as I said, not like Cornelius's. Um, this vision has to do with clean and unclean animals being let down in this sheet from heaven. And what God is telling Peter to do is to eat even unclean animals. Well, we had a lesson the other night, Wednesday night, uh, that talked about clean and unclean and so forth. Well, there were animals that you were not to eat. Spoken of in the book of Leviticus, chapter 11. And a faithful Jew was careful not to eat unclean animals. He would be unclean. He would be unfit for the worship of God. He was unfit to, to worship in the temple. I have never eaten anything unclean, he said. Peter had a reputation for being impetuous. He once rebuked the Lord Jesus. Uh, he rebuked him several times. We remember when Jesus wanted to wash his feet. Not mine, Lord, not mine. Far be it from you, Lord, he said. This shall not happen to you when Jesus spoke of his death. Charles Spurgeon said Peter was always a blunderer in his early days and he had not outgrown his old habits of honest impetuosity. <laughs> well, Peter explains the reason for his objection. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. He's referring to these Jewish dietary laws. 
But this voice from heaven responds with this simple assertion, what God has cleansed or declared clean, you must not call common. R.C. Sproul said in that moment, centuries of dietary laws and legal requirements that God had sent to His people through Moses were instantly repealed. Now, you need to understand God wasn't just throwing His law away. Some of God's laws were based upon His own holy character. He doesn't do away with those laws. These others, while they were not arbitrary uh, or or, or whimsical, uh, they were still laws that God was using to teach the Israelites lessons. They were in this age of being under a tutor like little children, and they're being taught unclean and clean and so forth. God is a holy God. And so you're going to learn even by the things you eat that God is holy. R.C. Sproul said, This may seem to indicate something whimsical or capricious about the character of God, but we have to understand that when God legislated to His people in the Old Testament, He did so in two, two different ways. On the one hand, He gave laws that came out of His character, which, ever, which, if ever repealed, would do violence to his sanctity and holiness. God didn't say you can commit adultery now, or, or you can steal now, or you, you can take my name in vain now. No, that would be repealing his own holy character. Therefore, he says, God would never repeal the moral law, the Ten Commandments, because to do so, he would be denying his character. But he did give these other laws which didn't grow out of His holy character. They were temporary in nature. They had a purpose. And when that purpose was realized, they were abrogated or done away with. You see, God, by these laws, He wanted to make sure the people of Israel knew they were a separate people. Yes, they belonged to the race of humanity, but God chose them and called them out of the world that they would be separate from the other nations. They wouldn't be like the other nations. God was their God. And He had given them these laws, so they were very careful. When that purpose was realized, these laws were abrogated. They were done away with. This is a period of transition here in the book of Acts. What we find, the old is passing away and the new has come. And that's what we'll see as we study through the book of Acts. We'll see that this didn't happen overnight. They were wrestling with this for years and, and even Paul wrestling with these same things many years later about the Gentile inclusion or about dietary laws and what will these Gentiles that come in, uh, do we have any special laws for them? It's a transitory time. Period of transition. You see, but what God was doing, He wasn't just teaching Peter about these laws. And Peter, you no doubt he's wondering, boy, I can eat all these things I've never been able to eat before. Remember, he went up on the roof. He's hungry. They're preparing him something. He's hollered down, hey, I'll take a ham sandwich now. (laughs) No, God's not talking about that. He's not talking about foods as Peter begins to realize. And he won't realize until he sees Cornelius and sees what's happening. God has shown me that he is no respecter of persons. And what he calls clean, I cannot call unclean. I wouldn't even enter the house of a Gentile before, but God has shown me that he has called it clean. 
I am to go there now. I am to take the Gospel. Even the Gentiles can come in. And then he summoned to Caesarea in verses 17 through 23. I'll just read this and we'll be done for the, for the morning. But he says, while he was wondering within himself what this vision he had, which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision... The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing. Doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent from him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. See, this is a historic movement going on here. God is tearing down those walls. God is bringing into His kingdom, into His church, Gentiles. And next week we'll look at this, how God brought them in. But He brings them in the same way He brings anyone in, whether Jew or Gentile. Remember, Paul said, the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The same Gospel. And so he comes and he preaches the same Gospel that he preached on the day of Pentecost, basically. The same thing, not word for word, but the same message. And that message is is through Him. He died and He rose again. And it's through His name we have forgiveness. Our sins are forgiven. And he's learning this lesson that we take for granted. But God was opening wide the door of salvation. And He's going to do it through a man preaching the Word of God. Sometimes you might think, oh, if if an angel would just appear to me, then I would believe. If I would only see something miraculous, then I would believe. Remember what Jesus said about Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man said, send Lazarus back. Alive from the dead, then my family will believe. And says, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, neither would they believe though someone rise from the dead. God's going to send a man. And right here in this place, I'm a man. I'm nothing special, but I'm preaching a message that's very special. I'm preaching a message that has life, eternal life in it. These are the words of eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If you're waiting for something else, you're waiting in vain, my friend. Listen to the message. Believe the Gospel. He who believes will be saved. He who believes not, the Bible says, will be damned. Your only hope is in this message. Not the messenger, but the message itself. 
Jesus Christ came into the world. Paul says, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. There's no other way to be saved. Seeing a miracle won't save you. Seeing an angel won't save you. Believing the gospel will. That's what Peter's doing here. And this Gentile and his family and his friends, they come in and they receive the Holy Spirit just like Peter had. God granted repentance to the Gentiles. We ought to be immensely thankful for that. But if you're still on the outside, you need to believe. You need to look to Christ. He is the only one who can save you. Let's pray.